If you would, turn to the Bible to Nehemiah chapter 8. Today we're going to wrap up chapter 8 and cover almost all of chapter 9. We're moving along through Nehemiah and it's been good for us. Last week we went Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12. Today we'll start at Nehemiah 8, 13 and we will keep going. It's homecoming season. All of our local schools are having their homecomings. I know I was talking to my sister who lives in North Carolina and my, my niece, her daughter, was going to homecoming down there. It's just this time of year during the fall that we have homecomings and our church does a homecoming where we look back on our history and that's in two weeks, two weeks from today. And homecoming is a neat little study because it is a coming home. Coming home is a good thing, really No matter how you look at it, it's supposed to be a good thing. But it seems in life, because of how hard life is, we're not always able to come home. It seems in life that we can burn bridges so much that we're not welcome back to a place. Sadly, this can even happen in families, stores, Towns, communities, relationships, homes, we can't come home. But with God, this is not the case. Hallelujah. God never runs out of grace and mercy. God has never feared that you are going to take advantage of him. God always welcomes people back in faith and repentance. As our passage today will show us, I quote, he is always ready to forgive. If we're we're going to be a light in the world, if we're going to be a city on a hill, if we're going to be a people changed and a people on fire and a people filled with the power of God, we must know what he's like. And we must reflect that he is a God ready to forgive. We see this throughout all of our stories in Scripture. The people of Israel are a sad example of faithfulness and obedience. And in our long Old Testament, which is a very, very long book, it is more than twice as long as the New Testament, what you have is them Trying to obey and failing, and trying to obey and failing, and trying to obey and failing. It is a long history of them not keeping their word, of them not living up to their end of the bargain, of them falling short. And what does God continue to do? Receive them back upon their repentance. The the same message is modeled through our Lord Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament. The woman at the well is trying to hide some of her past issues and Jesus just tells her, I know all about those and you're still welcome with me if you will drink of the living water. Zacchaeus has been crooked financially his whole time and yet Jesus says, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today. The prodigal son had brought shame upon his father in the literally worst way possible. He took the inheritance before his father was dead. He said, let me go live how I want to live. I don't need you anymore. Dad, and the dad is God Almighty. And upon one step back in the right direction with a broken heart and conviction and repentance, the father took off running to his son. The woman caught in adultery was a woman caught in adultery. She had been sinning sexual risen. And while the judgmental men around were ready to stone her, it was our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, you go ahead and cast the first stone, those of you who are without sin. To which they all walked away. And Jesus so masterfully, beautifully says to her, upon who condemns you, Neither do I go and sin no more. Upon repenting of your sins, God will always receive you back. He is a God ready to forgive. 
In our passage today, we look at Nehemiah and the people of Israel now having rebuilt the walls, now having returned to the city of Jerusalem, and now learning to be a people that are the people of God. Now, this is still Old Testament, and they're going to fail again. They're going to keep messing it up. But I want us to understand what happens here. Read with me, if you will, at 8.13 to the end of chapter 8. Okay, We're going to go in three sections today. 8.13. And on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Does everybody see that? They've come together to study the word of God. That's great. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by that they should that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof. And in their assembly of those in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel, look at this, had not done so and there was very great rejoicing and day by day from the first day to the last day he read from the book of the law of God they kept the feast seven days and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule my first point this morning for you all and for kids with a listening page is being changed by the truth This is a remarkable section of scripture. It doesn't seem all that fascinating, I know. But when you look at these few verses that I just read and you put them in the context of Old Testament history and you put them in the context of the whole book of Nehemiah, this is incredible. The people here of Jerusalem who've come back after finishing the walls are being changed by the truth. It's very simple to see this. It's very simple from a pastoral perspective. And I really just hope that we will get this today. They come back in the city. They say, what can we do? They say, this was last week. They say, go get Ezra. Let him read the law of God. He comes and he reads it. Remember, he read it. He read it. He read it. He read it for hours. He read it from the beginning of the sunrise. He read it till midday. He just read the word of God to them over and over and over again. He's reading it to them. And now they are hearing, here's what God says. And so they're being changed. The word being read is causing them to see that God says things that they didn't know. This is embarrassing for the people of God. It's embarrassing in our lives and it's embarrassing then. God has clear things that he said to us that we're not aware of, that we don't listen to, and so we just live differently. And it's a disgrace in the world. Notice that you look there in verse um, 14. They're reading the word of God, and it says, well, not, hold on a second. Uh, Verse 13, they came together to read, the study the words of the law. Verse 14, yeah. And they found written in the law that the Lord God had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in the Old Testament. I mean, we we don't celebrate the Feast of Booths, but if you read the Old Testament, this is from Leviticus 23. God's got three celebrations that the people of Israel are supposed to do. We've got some holidays that we just, we just do. They're not real spiritual holidays for us. But the people of Israel had holidays, celebrations that they were supposed to do. And they moved back here into Jerusalem. They've been living as captives this whole time. And Ezra's reading the word and they're like, we never know he said to do the Feast of Booths. And you're kind of like, what? You're the people of Israel. Somebody reads the word to you and you're like, oh, I didn't know the Bible said that. All the time we have people boldly claiming to be followers of Christ, doing things that God says not to do. It's a problem in our culture. The reason why they don't know it is because they don't know the word of God. 
They don't read the word of God. They don't listen to the word of God. They don't come to church to hear somebody faithfully preach the word of God. If they do come to church, they're distracted, so they don't listen to the word of God. But what we see here is these people, for as much as they did not know the word of God, now they are being changed by the truth. That's what's unfolding in this passage. This passage is not a, not a, a, a sad passage, this end of chapter 8, about, about how bad they were. This is a passage about them coming to the awareness, hey, God wants us to do this, so we're going to do this. They are moving in the direction of obedience, and this is such a good thing. That's why I'm, I'm saying that point number one is being changed by the truth. God is asking them to live in a certain way that they had not been doing. It has been brought to their attention. It has been read out loud. Their, their community is now being informed by the word of God, and it's working in them, praise the Lord. And they were realizing there are things that God says of us that we don't do there are things that Christians are supposed to do that we don't do there are things that Christians are supposed to not do that we're still doing and they were having this kind of like light bulb turning on moment now they are wanting to obey God now they are wanting to listen matter of fact they are listening branches so they're out there trying to find the right trees and the right branches. They're trying to put this together. Verse 17 says a very uh, discouraging statement when it says, all the way back from the days of Jeshua, all the way until now, it had not been done so. And I hate to hear that. I hate to hear that. If Christians are to be people that forgive and we've not been forgiving. We hate to hear that. But the people here are recognizing all of those years we weren't doing what we were supposed to do. Now we're going to make it right. And that's what's happening. One thing I want you to recognize here is they are trying to do, literally, the Feast of Booths, which again, which again comes from Leviticus 23. It says there in verse 18, and day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and look, they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule, meaning according to what the Bible said, according to the way God had said it. They are now trying to listen. What made the change? The word of God. The word of God having a place in their lives. The word of God having power and position in their lives. The word of God says to do this, and now finally they're going, we need to do what God says to do if we're going to be believing him. It's a good thing. They're being changed by the truth. And real Christianity in the world is the, is the product of that. And if you don't like the word product, then we say it is the fruit of that. Now, there may be all kinds of examples and, and testimonies out there of, of fake Christianity and people that are, are doing damage to the cause of Christ and all of that. But the real thing that's being done in the world, somebody you might say, that person is the real deal and authentic. That person is the fruit of what God's power is doing in them through this book. In the world, you might be people are changed by the truth of God. And for as much as influence is a real thing in the world, you might be changed by some good parents, you might be impacted by a good coach or a good friend or a good neighbor. The true heart change that happens on the inside always comes through the influence of others, but always comes off the power of the truth of God getting inside of us. The Bible says that it's alive, it is active, it cuts deep inside of us, it goes to work on us, it convicts us of our sins, and it gives us life, it gives us health to rise up out of our sins to go to God and confess our sins, but the word of God is what does it. People are changed by the truth. You can't miss this. They're back in the city. The walls are built. What do we do? Grab Ezra. Let him read. He reads for hours and hours. This passage says that he read every single day in verse 18. Now they're reading the word of God, and guess what happens? Now they're wanting to follow the word of God. Amen. Amen. They're wanting to live for God. Here's another thing that I don't want you to miss. Do you remember how all of this happened? 42,000 people in a city hearing the word of God and striving to obey the word of God. Do you remember what started that? One guy who wasn't a governor at the time. He was a cupbearer. He was over here serving the king with a sad countenance. 
And he just saw some guys coming back from Jerusalem, and he said, how was it? And they said, it ain't good. It's a disaster down there. We are a reproach to God. Nehemiah stopped and prayed for days. He got a holy burden from God. That went on for about four months. And finally, one day, the king said, what can I do for you? Why are you so sad? He said, let me go back and rebuild the walls. Do you all remember that if you've been coming? One single person feeling the burden and conviction of this is not the way it should be. God deserves than this. He's more glory than this. God deserves a little more shine than this. He deserves more attention than this. He's worth more than we are showing how much he's worth. Don't nobody care about God with how pathetic we've been living, Nehemiah says. And it weighed on him. It convicted him. He was burdened. And the Bible says he prayed for four months straight. Finally, the king asks, and God opens that door. And fast forward however many days it's been, and you got 42,000 people gathered together hearing the word of God read out loud saying, let's obey what God says. He knows what's best for us. Don't miss what God might do through your little cup-bearing life if you will say, from now on, I'm going to listen to God. From now on, I am going to aim to do what God tells me to do. From now on, I'm going to submit and surrender every bit of me to what that book says. And whatever the results and consequences are, so be it. This book is changing me from the inside out. Don't miss what could happen there. Don't you doubt for a second that Fairdale or South Louisville or your neighborhood or your community or your family or your household could not be radically changed into a people that believe the Bible if you will believe the Bible. Don't you hesitate for a second to think that an entire direction of a road, entire direction of a family can be completely do a 180 and change if you will submit to the word of God and be changed by it. I mean changed by it. Where it says repent, you repent. Where it says you're wrong, you say I'm wrong. Where it says you're a fool, you say I'm a fool. Where it says go this way, you go this way. But you will trust in the power of God to work on you from the inside out. Nehemiah, he doesn't get the glory in this book, God does, but you and I know that God changed Nehemiah and started submitting to the word of God, and now we've got a whole city now trying to submit itself to the truth of God. The question becomes, and it's a good one, now we know because I've just been teaching it, but the question becomes, my goodness, how did these people end up like that? And we ask that question sometimes, don't we? When we see somebody kind of make a big, what happened? Goes through a, you know, a, a major weight loss or a big you know, life adjustment or something like that. Hey, what happened? Tell me what happened. I've gotten that question a lot. When I was in high school and my dad put the pressure on me big time to figure out what I was going to do in life, which all you teenagers, it's too hard to figure out what you're going to do in life when you're 16, 17, 18. I got all kinds of grace and understanding for you all. If your parents are putting the pressure on you all, just humbly say, I don't know. Because I didn't know. So I went to college, and I majored in golf, turf grass management. Many of y'all don't think that's a real thing. That's a real thing. That's a really good class and degree. I went to a school that was really good at that. I went to an agricultural college. And for the first year and a half, when I was 18 and 19, I was a turf grass major. We went to class. They showed us all these different grasses. We had to learn the different types, which one wanted heat, which one wanted sunlight, which one wanted shade, which one wanted water, which one. That's what I majored in until God called me into ministry. And I can't tell you how many times in my life when somebody said, well, what, what were you majoring in? I say, I'm golf turf management. And they're like, what is that? How did you end up with that degree? I've answered that so many times in my life. How did you end up that way? And so then I tell them the backstory of what happened in my life and how I got introduced to that. And I, got to, I had a unique opportunity to build a golf course when I was in my teenage years. Uh, I just had a lot of experience with that, and I liked it, and so that's what I did. But the question would come of, how did you end up like that? What happened? And when you see the worldly people of Israel, when you see the ungodly people of Israel, when you see the truth ignoring, truth ignorant, we don't listen to the Bible. We didn't even know that there was a feast of booths, they just said. <laughs> Think about that. Imagine being the nation of Israel, the Jewish people going, 
didn't even know that there was a Feast of Booths. When you see them all now go and a party and decorating their house and building the Feast of Booth and getting everybody ready, doing a week-long celebration, a party, a festival with lots of rejoicing, you're going to go, what happened? What happened to you people? You ain't never acted like that before. You, never, you ain't never acted like God was Lord over your life before. Like his word was binding and it had power and influence and significance in your life that if he says it, you want to labor to do it. What happened? And the answer is so crystal clear to us this morning, isn't it? The word of God became meaningful to them. The word of God became real to them. The word of God that is living started working in them, and they could not continue ignoring it. They were being, number one, changed by the truth. But as we get into chapter 9, we cannot just allow ourselves to say, okay, cool. Cool testimony. They were changed. Chapter 9 walks us through how that change took place. And I think this is more important for us today. Number one, they were being changed by the truth. Number two, my second point this morning for you kids with the listening page is they were being convicted over their sins. Being convicted over our sins. Our very next verse, chapter 9, verse 1. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. For Old Testament times and for a long time ago, this is another way of saying they were experiencing a godly grief. They were convicted over their sins. They were bothered at their hypocrisy. They were bothered by their ungodliness. They were bothered by their backsliding, unrightness. They were bothered by their unfaithfulness to God. They were bothered by their unrightful living. They were bothered by it. And the way you see this is because of these three words, fasting, sackcloth, and earth on their heads. You know what fasting is. That's the one most familiar to us. Fasting is when you keep yourself from something, most often food, so that you can long further for God. That's what fasting is. There's not necessarily a secret thing. You don't earn grace with God. God gives grace. You don't earn grace. But the Bible teaches us to fast. Jesus often fasted. It's, it's just saying that if I'm, if I'm over here eating and filling my belly, I'm not as longing for God as I could be as if I skipped this meal, felt the hunger in my stomach, and I cried out to God over here on my knees. That's what fasting does. We're not to fast all the time. You need, you need food. But the Bible teaches that there is a, is a type of time for us to fast and yearn for God. That's what they're doing. What prompted this was this great awareness of we are sinning against God. So now they're in fasting. They are crying out to God. They are convicted over their sins. They're fasting. The next thing here is sackcloth, in sackcloth. This is the type of way that you would dress. This is a type of clothing where you would look like you're bothered. This was an outward thing, which we don't really have too much of this in our culture, but they did back then. You would intentionally try to look like I'm a mess. You would intentionally try to show I'm broken, I'm wrong, I've sinned, I'm not right. Just look at what I look like. I don't have it all together. I'm a mess. I'm in fasting. I'm in mourning. I'm in grieving over here. It was an outward thing. And then the third one is earth on their heads. And this was a way that they would, take, they would take dirt and they would literally put it on them to just accentuate this even more. Hey, we are wrong here. We're, we're the problem. We're not the ones who are supposed to be all smiley, happy, and it's all good. There's no fake or front that we're putting on to no grief. They were convicted over our sins. These were expressions that show grief. They were expressions that show heavy hearts over their sin and their conviction. This was a longing for God. This was, I'm wrong, he's right. This was, something needs to change. Conviction, church, is an absolute part of Christianity. If you are not convicted of your sins, 
that's a sign that we're in a bad place. If we're okay to just move it, move along, shrug our shoulders, make an excuse, quickly find somebody else that acts the same way and so minimize it, that's not conviction. Conviction is I hurt, my heart hurts, my insides hurt, I'm bothered by this. I can't stop thinking about how he feels about this. Conviction is a real thing that God gives. It's stronger than a guilty conscience. Guilty conscience is a part of it. It's stronger than a guilty conscience and a dirty conscience. Everybody has that. Conviction is what God gives to his children when they are out of line. Conviction is, man, I know I messed up. Man, I know I did wrong. I know he doesn't like me to do that. I know that I'm doing wrong here, and they are feeling this. In the midst of them celebrating, chapter 8, verse 17 says there was very great rejoicing. We also see that there is this conviction, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing for God's children to be convicted when we sin. This brings up the idea that we must acknowledge that we do sin. We all do. So therefore, conviction should have a place in our lives. When we say the wrong thing, when we are judgmental towards somebody, when we've been wrong, when we get caught up in lust or we go the wrong direction with somebody that we shouldn't or we go and do things that God says not to do, we should feel conviction. It's a part of the Christian life. It shouldn't be, okay, the message is not that Christians don't sin and therefore Christians don't have conviction, no. Christians do sin and Christians are convicted and Christ is a savior of sinners. It's a sign of fear that they are being convicted and this is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a sign of their growth. It's a sign of their their going in the right direction. It's a sign that they're being changed by the truth because before they weren't doing this. Before they weren't wearing the sackcloth, before they weren't mourning and grieving, before they weren't fasting, before they weren't putting the the earth on their heads. They were just living like everybody else. Y'all, this is probably the biggest problem with our Christianity of today. You go to church, you got people that don't go to church, you claim Christ, you got people that don't claim Christ, and y'all do the same things, you sin in the same ways and all that, and there's not the same, there's not a different response to our sins. The lost people in our lives do not respond to sin the way that we do. You and I grieve. We are convicted. God will eat us up on the inside with conviction, and that's a real thing. Now, notice here, okay, this is a a while ago, fasting, sackcloth, earth on the heads. Now, we know that this is outward stuff. We know that. And we're not as into the outward stuff now. We are quick to say, that's that's just for show. That's just for attention. That's just what it is. The real issue here is not the outward stuff. It's not the the way they're dressed or the dirt. It's not that. The real issue here is at the heart. Conviction over your sins is a heart thing. Your heart has to be convicted. And this is why Christianity is a spiritual thing, and it is, we must admit, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell if somebody's convicted or not over what they're doing. And so if they keep doing the same things that God says not to do, one can rightly say, I don't really think they're convicted by it. I mean, being convicted feels awful. Being convicted makes you think, I don't want to do that anymore. So it's a heart issue, and sometimes you can't tell what's going on in somebody's heart. But nevertheless, your heart has to be convicted. Your heart on the inside of you has to be running to God over this thing. But when we are repentant and our heart is right... This is, it is Jesus' heart to show outwardly through us. And this is faithful and consistent to what the Bible teaches. It is Jesus himself that says, you will be able to tell what kind of a tree it is by the fruit that hangs off the tree. If a tree is just getting started and there's no fruit hanging off of it, the average arbalist will look at it and go, I don't know if that's an apple tree or orange tree. I mean, is it a dogwood? I mean, what we got going on here? Is it a pine tree? I mean, I, I don't really know. And Jesus is the one who says, well, just wait until the fruit starts coming and you'll be able to tell what kind of a tree that is. And so it is in the life of Israel here and so it is in the life of us today that everybody around is going, you don't have to tell me whether you go to church or not. I can let you know. You don't have to tell me whether you're going to heaven or not. You don't have to tell me what your heart is most centered in. I'll let you know by the way I see you living. That's the teaching of Jesus. And it's a heart issue. When we are repentant and our heart is right, then it will often show outwardly. It's kind of like body language. 
We talk about body language a lot. I know in sports we talk about body language a lot. You can tell if somebody's lost their confidence in a heartbeat. You can tell if somebody's down and ready to give up. You can tell if somebody's confident in a heartbeat. Well, Christianity doesn't use those things that much, confidence and lack of confidence. We don't want to go in that direction. But the point is, is that posture and body language will often show you whether you're prideful over your sins or whether you're convicted over your sins. Jesus tells a parable that teaches that exact thing. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember that one? The Pharisee comes over here and prays to God about all the good things that he does. He says, God, thank you that I'm not like them, and thank you that I'm not like them, and I give money, and I do this, and I'm at the temple to worship. I do all of these things, God. The Bible says he's got his hands lifted as he says that. And then Jesus says there's another guy over here who's a tax collector. He's known as being a crook, and he says he can't lift his head up. He's beating his chest. And all he can pray is, God, have mercy on my sinful soul. And Jesus Christ says, out of those two, which one went home saved? No conviction says it's that one. That guy there, he ain't saved. No conviction, no brokenness, no heaviness of heart. Pride thinks he's the man telling God all that he does. Hey, God knows everything you've done. If you've ever given a dollar, God knows you have. If you've ever done a good deed, God knows you have. You don't got to keep telling me or us or anybody else all the good you do. We see it. You certainly don't need to tell God all the good things you're doing. He's fully aware of all that we've done. We need to go to God with our sins in conviction. The Pharisee and the tax collector is a story that Jesus told to model what it looks like to feel conviction over your sins. And so, back in Israel's time, in the time of Nehemiah, fasting and sackcloth and dirt in your hearts was something, and dirt on your heads was something to show that you were aware of the dirt in your heart. It was something to show that you were bothered by your sins. The New Testament teaches us that we show we are trusting in Christ by our repentance for our sins. Without repentance, Ephesians says, there is no forgiveness of sins. We will not be forgiven without repentance. And so number one, they were being changed by the truth. Number two, they were being convicted over their sins. And then lastly here today, number three, They were confessing those sins to God, believing that he will forgive them. They were confessing those sins to God, believing that he will forgive them. So, if we sin and we don't confess it to God, either we don't think it was wrong or we don't think he'll do anything about it. don't understand him rightly or we don't understand us rightly we either don't think that's a sin and bad and against God or we don't think God knows or sees or cares or judges or blesses or whatever in our passage today they do they confess their sins to God those sins to God believing that he will forgive read with me starting in chapter 9 verse 2 And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and, look at this, confessed their sins. Everybody see that? And the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Imagine. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shedbaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. They were confessing their sins, and they were believing that God forgives them. This is an incredible passage. 
See, we, we, we get lost in all of life, and we either think that one of the ways to handle sin is to make sin not that big of a deal or, or say that things aren't sin anymore, and that kind of makes it go away, or we make God to be not that, be not that big or not that bad or not that real or not that present, and so that kind of makes everything not that big of a deal anymore, and either one of those don't work. And we kind of think that if either one of those get emphasized more and we get a little bit more healthy and accurate on either ends of that spectrum, then it's just going to cause too much problem. But that's not right. It is the truth of God and the way of Christ that that's the way it is. It's enough for big enough for sins to be bad enough. God is big enough and gracious enough for us to see that we are wrong, we are sinful, we are rebellious, we are dead in our sins, and to confess that openly. God is big enough and good enough for you to see say, God, I sin here, I sin with my mouth, I sin with my lust, I sin with my body, I sin with the way I treat people, I sin in my home, I sin toward my kids. God, I sin all the time. I was wrong here, my tongue, my lips, my, my, my eyes, my heart, my lust, I'm wrong. And God is big enough and good enough to be able to say, I got it, I see it. I have a holy son who never sinned. And there ain't enough sin in the ocean. There ain't enough sin in your life. There ain't enough sin in your family. There isn't enough sin to make what my son did for you lose its value. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the sinful. And so what the sinful do is they confess their sins to the God, believing he welcomes, he forgives. So then what happens, and this is really good because I, I almost missed this. I really did. I almost missed this. Starting in verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter, and so y'all are going to have to buckle up, they start praying. This is a prayer. This is the longest prayer in the Bible, actually. This is the longest prayer in the Bible apart from maybe Psalm 119 being prayers. 9-6 all the way to 38 and maybe even into chapter 10, I couldn't tell. But at least 6 through 37, 6 through 38 is a super long prayer. Now, as I read this, I want you to just notice the verses where both things are happening. They're confessing their sins and they're believing who God is. They're confessing their sins and they are believing who God is. Verse 6, this is a prayer. You are the Lord on it, the sin. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought, brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and you gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the, of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. Look at this line. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself. I love that line, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they, when they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters... By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you, you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Notice this, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that, they, that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Here's our verse. If you're underlining verses, this is it. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. 
Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought mercies, did and had committed great blasphemies. Look at this line. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat, look at this line, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless... They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer and in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. Look at this line. And according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after that they had rest But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey Many years you bore with them, therefore you them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Look at this line. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you've been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us. Look at this line. Because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. I know that that is a lot to read, but that is a great picture of confessing your sins to a God that you believe in who will forgive you. Many times in that prayer, they acknowledge who God is, what God is like. He's merciful, gracious, ready to forgive. And many, many times in that prayer, they say, here's what we do wrong. Here's what we do wrong. Here's what we've done wrong. Church, we cannot be a people that lack either of those. We must be aware of God and his great gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless one who went to the cross on us that it was because to die for sinners such as I. And we must also acknowledge that it was because of our sins, sinners such as you and I, that sent him to the cross. Christians are people who acknowledge a great God and our great sins. We are people who admit God is good and we admit that we are not good. We sin against God. We must have both of those things. May we not live with the spirit of the day where we can just continue to try to act like we're fine, we're good, we're okay, it's not that bad. That is not the way of Christianity. 
Christ gets all the glory when he is a savior to sinners. He does not only help us, he wakes us up. He redeems us. He makes us alive after our sins have made us dead. Betts commentating on this long prayer says, as the prayer for God's deliverance develops, it shows how the people recognize just how mightily God has acted on their behalf and how amazingly good and compassionate he has been, especially in light of their repeated unfaithfulness to him. It's a good prayer. It's a long prayer, but it's a good one. Getting right with God, church, must include repentance of sins. Repentance of sins is not only turning from sin, but it is a turning to God. A lot of times we will demonstrate that repentance means to turn. It really does. It's a simple word, repent. It just means to turn. And so our life is going this way with whatever we're doing, okay? You might be a nice guy. You might be a mean guy. You might be very happy. You might be depressed. You might have had a lot of struggle. You may have had it easy as can be, right? Maybe rich, maybe poor, maybe everything. But your life's just going in whatever direction you're taking it. If it does not turn away from sin and to God, we've never repented. And that's the whole thing. There must be repentance in our lives, you know, and, and we said this before, it doesn't mean you do a 360, I think everybody knows a 360, right? If I'm going this way and I do a 360 to it, but guess what? Right? I'm still going this way. I may have brought God into it, but guess what? Now I'm a fake Christian that's still going that way with all my sins. Repentance is a turn. It is a 180. It is a, this is going to lead me to hell. This is not working out for me. This is creating damage and splintered relationships and lack of trust and guilty conscience and conviction in my life. And it's not good for me. So I'm going to turn away from that and I'm going to turn to God. One of my favorite verses that models this well is Acts chapter 20, verse 21. If you're taking notes, you just write down. It says they repented from sin and toward God. It even uses that wording. Acts 20, 21. They repented toward God, which means they turned around from whatever they were doing, whatever they were go- direction they were going, and they turned toward God. It's a beautiful thing. We bring this all the way back to the context in Nehemiah. They're in Jerusalem. The walls are built. They're reading the word of God. They're trying to become a city. And as the word of God keeps having place in their lives, they are convicted of their sins, and so they confess their sins. They are both growing in their knowledge of God and what he's like and growing in their knowledge of their sinfulness. That is mature and healthy spiritual Christianity. There's an illustration that I like to use, and we're going to close with this today. This quarter illustration, some of y'all have seen me do this before. I have in my hand right here a quarter, and most of you all know what a quarter's like, right? Right? At the top of it, it says United States of America. The bottom of it, it says quarter dollar. On the left, it says liberty. On the right, it says in God we trust. And there's a picture of who on the front? Who's on the quarter? George Washington. Yeah, y'all know what a quarter is. That's the size, you know the weight, you know what it feels like. I could, you used to be able to buy something with a quarter. Now nothing literally is worth a quarter. But that's a quarter. But now we have all sorts of, yeah, y'all know that. On the back of the quarter, y'all know what's on there. It used to be an eagle, but now we have all sorts of things. On this particular one, it says uh, British Surrender 1777. There's all sorts of things. You can get the 50 states. You can get the territories. You can get some of the landmarks. I mean, we know what quarters are, right? This one has that on there, but you know what a quarter is. One real obvious truth of a quarter is that there are two sides to this. Two sides. I used to have better hands. There are two sides to the coin. And for you to know 100% that this is a coin, you have... Good grief. For you to know... I really used to have better hands. For you to know that this is a quarter, you have to be able to see both, don't you? If you were walking down the street today, you're walking out to the car... And you saw a quarter there. You thought, oh, it was a quarter. Size, shine, George Washington, every bit of it. And you picked it up, and on the back it said, ha-ha, joke's on you. You'd think, oh, they, got, they got me. 
But that side looks the way a quarter looks. In the same way, if you saw it face down, you didn't see George Washington, but you saw this territory thing here, and you picked it up, and on the other side, it wasn't George Washington. You'd think, well, that side looks like a quarter, but that side doesn't. Folks, Christianity has two sides to the coin. Faith in Christ and repentance of sins. There's a whole world of people out there that have a faith in Christ. They'll speak of him. They'll say he's Lord. They'll pray when they need to. They have a Bible. But you turn it over just to check its authenticity. There's no repentance of sins there. That's not Christianity. Or vice versa. Let's do the opposite. There's a lot of people out there, good people, who are humble and they have conviction in their lives. They apologize when they need to. They own it. But when you fault, they go and make it right. They'll fix a mistake. But when you flip it over, there's no faith in Christ. There's no love for the one who died for you. There are two sides to the coin. You can be about 90% sure that that's a quarter. But you got to check the back. You can be about 90% sure that that's a quarter, but you got to check the other side. The Bible is teaching us that Christian people, because of what they know of God their Father, trust Him by faith and turn from their sins. When the people of Israel got into Jerusalem, the Word of God started being read. They cried out to God because of their sins. They confessed their sins because they knew God would receive them. They could come home to him. Church, may we really be believers. Because Jesus died for us. And every time we sin, we hate it. We feel conviction. And so we cry out to him. May you today resolve, commit, decide. I will be a believer and I'll be a repentant sinner. May you know he will forgive you. He is ready to forgive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this incredible passage in Nehemiah. We covered a lot today. But the people of Israel being convicted, confessing it, understanding you, God, is so helpful for us. Oh, Father, today, give us conviction. Give us repentance that we would be right with you. Work in our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.